Our Father, we're thankful again that tonight we can enjoy the Word of God. We have freedom in this country to approach the Word of God, to spend time together around the Word uh, with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, illuminating us to the content of what He Himself has written down in history of your words and works. So we ask tonight that this great teacher of teachers would open our eyes to things in Scripture that we might know you and know you better. In Christ's name, amen. Just to uh, get a running start again, we're still going to be in the Exodus tonight. We hope to finish that up. So next week, we'll start with Mount Sinai, the Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And this is why there are no new notes tonight, um, because we've kind of gotten behind the stream of notes. Um, but that's okay. Uh, there's some stuff here that we need to spend a little time on. So I'd like to start tonight, if you'll open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11, um, just so to make sure, if you haven't read a little bit in the book of Exodus, that you're familiar with this. Second book of the Bible. We've spent a lot of time in Genesis and going through the highlights of Genesis. I remind you that again... The approach of this class is not that of a typical Bible class. Uh, sometimes I cringe when I see that in the bulletin. It's a Bible class on Thursday night. I guess it's a Bible class in that we come to use the Bible, but it's not a classical verse-by-verse approach. And that's designed that way because what we're trying to do is look at the overall biblical worldview so that we understand the major parts of that worldview so when we do go verse by verse, we, we have perspective. And we've looked at themes, as we've noticed in each one of these great events. We've noticed that Genesis takes us all the way down to these first five events that associate with those five events, each of those five uh, being filled with details and narrative that are entertaining, they're imaginative, they're heart-filling, uh, there are ways that we have of putting connotation on words so that words mean something to us and not just what the world likes to do. Um, I was noticing today in the organization I belong to is like a lot of different organizations uh, in the business world. They, they get these guys to come into your company or into your organization, give seminars and management and leadership and all the rest of it. And uh, this particular person that they've hired to do this out, out at the Aberdeen Test Center um, is one who's gone around to the Fortune 500 companies and given them all these little management things. And uh, I started looking at the front page uh, of his book, and uh, I noticed that he uh, made the statement. Uh, we were looking at a condensation of his book. Um, I'm supposed to read a 250-page book for tomorrow, but everybody cheated and got a seven-page review. <laughs> Uh, life hasn't changed since high school. Um, the deal is that this man starts out by saying that before, now, from what you've all, what we've gone through now, this is a good test. This is a typical kind of response. Now, we've all gone through Genesis and we've gotten a little bit of the framework of Scripture. Now, just think of this. You're reading this thing and you see, first page, he says, before World War I, the emphasis in the business world was upon character. That this was the most important thing. But after World War I, the emphasis has been on personality. 
positive thinking, principles, gimmicks, and all the rest of the hoopla stuff. And his whole approach is a pitch to get back to principle leadership, to, char to, to character-based leadership. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Now, from what we know, what is true? Let's think this thing through. This is a test. This is a little application exercise here. Because you will encounter this. And you need to, as a Christian, think through, well, wait a minute. What am I listening to? First of all, you have to watch it because a lot of businesses, particularly large corporations, are hiring all kinds of queers to come in and do this kind of stuff. I mean, you've got Scientology and all the touchy-feely people and all the rest of it. I don't know what these corporate executives think about. But they get these people in here and if a Bible-believing Christian came in, they'd have the, the Supreme Court involved in it, right, in about first five and a half minutes. But they can invite all these characters in with their touchy-feely, gooey stuff. And, of course, that's religiously neutral, see. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't fringe anybody's religious freedom because nobody thinks about what's, what's being said. So anyway, in the first page of this, we read this little statement. And it's a great remark. The guy's right. That is happened. But let's think through why did that happen? Because the rest, from page one on through the rest of the whole operation, it's, we've got to get character. And then from character, you, you, know, you go out and do other things, and then you interact with groups, and you get the team working and all the rest of it. Hey, that's great. That's great. But the problem is, why, what happened at World War I? I mean, if it's really true that before World War I we thought this way, and after World War I we thought that way, and you're coming to us and telling us that what we need to do in our business organizations is go back to the pre-World War I mode of thinking. Well, how do we do that? Because we don't live now before World War I. The world has changed. The whole intellectual climate has changed. And then he goes on and says, there are certain unalterable principles of human character that control human character just as much as the law of gravity. And, of course, as a Christian, that reverberates, and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he talks about that we have to anchor our character in values. What You have to think through what your value is. So now we've got character and value we're talking about, see. But watch what happens. Now, this is the sneaky part. And, folks, we have got to learn how to handle this stuff, because we get hit with it all the time. The word, the noun, character. The noun, value. Now, put those two words up there, you, as Bible-believing people, read those words one way because you've been biblically informed. The Joe who comes out of a non-Christian pagan background, how does he read those? And he points out how it's, it's the principle of value over impulse. Well, now let's just reverse the role a little bit and I happen to be the assistant commandant of Austerwitz. And my value in the SS is to purge Europe of gypsies, Jews, and blacks to purify the gene pool so we all have blonde, blue-eyed people when we're done. But I happen to come across, on impulse, a poor, starving Jewish person. Now, what do I do? I overcome my impulse with my value because my value is Heil Hitler, the Third Reich. Let's cleanse and purify the Germanic race. So, now, I'm sure that that is not what this man has in mind, but the point is, you can load character and value with anything if you don't have the framework for it. And then he goes on and makes a statement which I thought found fascinating. In fact, remember when we went back through creation, what do we say with the three divine institutions? Said so the first divine institution was responsibility uh, for dominion, that we are responsible for our lives before God. 
and we said, we talked about marriage, we talked about family, and then what did we say when we went to the fall? We said, what happened to the first divine institution? Dominion. Dominion wasn't taken away. The, the evil person still dominates. What was changed was the orientation of the dominion. Now, instead of in a good direction, it's in a bad direction. I haven't taken it away. And we've fallen. So, now instead of having people who are free to choose, we have people who are free to choose in a limited domain, namely, which sin do you want to do today? That's fallenness. So, ignoring creation the fall, all of a sudden we read in chapter so-and-so of this guy's book, oh, gee, human beings have the right of choice. It's not stimulus-response. Well, ever since World War I, what has biochemical evolution told us? That the results of our behavior are determined by what? Our body chemistry. Isn't that what you're reading about? Well, I can't help it. I mean, I'm a homosexual because my gene got screwed up somewhere. So, aren't I biochemically determined? Isn't it stimulus response? Of course it is. Well, here's guys pleading that, that really that's not true, that man has a right to choice between the stimulus of the environment and that man's response. He really has a genuine choice. Well, that's nice, Mr. So-and-so, but excuse me, where are you getting that from and why should I believe that? And it's funny, the first three or four pages of this, I mean, all the big guys in corporate America sign on to this fella that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Oh, this guy's great. And I'll bet you if you walked into those same corporate executives and said, have you thought about what this guy's saying? He's totally philosophically at odds with everything you're doing. And you're trying to take the techniques that he's talking about without the gospel or without Christ or without the Christian framework, and you're trying to make it work in your business. How do you do that? Well, you don't do that. But everybody's giving this guy kudos and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to go around the country and tell him that we need character in the workplace. Gee, no kidding. That's not the problem. It's how do you get it? So anyway, my point is that this is the kind of gooey stuff that's out there floating around. And even what the sad thing about it is, because in the final analysis, it's an admission the pagan is making that he really does like the fruit of Christianity that it is pragmatically attractive to him. The problem is he doesn't want the root that goes with the fruit. He doesn't want the Christ that goes with the character. So he's never going to get there. We can talk about it from now until hell freezes over, but he's never going to get there because he can't. He's just bypassed something. And what that bypasses is what we want to look at here in, in Exodus. Because in Exodus chapter 11, I want you to just, just let's go through the text and look at it a moment because this is so utterly unlike what you would read in um, How to Improve Your Life book. This is, uh, this is really not the kind of material that wins friends and influences people. And yet, from God's point of view, this is the only way. See, that's the interesting thing about what we're learning here. The Exodus comes very sharply to the point of defining what salvation is all about. That's what the Exodus picture is. This is salvation in the raw, the blood and the guts of salvation. And you'll notice it's, it's barren of how we feel. There's not a word in this passage about how we're supposed to feel. It's all on basically what God thinks of us and what he's trying to do to get us back in a relationship with him. Okay, let's look at it. Now the Lord said to Moses, 
One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Now, you notice what is said in verse 1 here. What is said is exactly opposite to what's been happening. Every other plague has done what to Pharaoh's heart? It's hardened his heart. And we said last week that's part of God's chess game. Because had God let the Jews off earlier, it could have been interpreted as a mosaic, pharaonic deal that was negotiated in the smoke-filled room. It was a human arrangement that happened. But by making Pharaoh reject and reject and reject, God set up such a messy situation that the only way out of it was by some catastrophic, miraculous way. So, notice how it ends in verse 1. After that, he's going to let you go. Not only is he going to let you go, he's going to kick you out. He's going to be so glad to get rid of you when I get done with him that he will gladly let you leave. Verse 2, Now speak in the hearing of the people that each man asks from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. We mentioned that in passing and we'll mention it later on again in the law. What verse 2 is all about is the capitalization of the nation Israel. Verse 2 shows you where their economy got the money to start with. Now think about it for a minute. You've got a million people wandering around the desert. How do they get wealth? How does the, the machine of business start? You can say, well, they conquered the land. Sure, they got real estate assets. They're going to get real estate assets. But what do they do in the meantime? Where do they get their food? is isn't, isn't completely all manna, because when they get in the land, they're not going to have the manna. So they've got to have money for clothing, for food, for the things of life. Now, how does that nation uh, get the treasury started? What is the initial surge in the treasury? can't be taxes. They don't have any money to give to taxes. Well, verse 2 is where they do. And verse 2 is a historic irony because who was it that built a lot of the Egyptian architecture for free because they were slaves? In effect, what verse 2 is, it gives the Jews back their salaries that they didn't get for all those years. So verse 2 is important as a subnote because it, that initializes the economy of the state of Israel. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. Moses thus said, and by the way, if you check this out, you'll find, if you look and ask yourself, of all the books, I'm sure you all ask yourself this over every dinner, um, of all the books of the Old Testament, which ones have the highest frequency of Egyptian words? And it's Genesis, Exodus, and the first five books. Now, isn't that ironic? See, the liberals don't even believe Moses wrote it. They believe somebody else later on in history wrote it. Well, that's strange, isn't it? That here's a guy who was brought up in Pharaoh's household. Of course he knew Egyptian. He could read Egyptian hieroglyphics, so it's no accident there are Egyptian loan words throughout, sprinkled throughout the text of, of this book. Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. Now, let's just try to place yourself just let's read this slowly and imaginatively. Pretend you are there. Your family's there. Your children are there. Your neighbors are here. Now let's just read this and, and, and see if we can emotionally identify with what's going on here in the text. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones. All the firstborn of the cattle 
Notice that one, the cattle. See how miraculously detailed this is? This isn't an accident. This isn't some sort of a, a plague that happened to get loose. Health department couldn't contain it. This is something very, very specific. The firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as there shall never be again. Do you see how hard the text is working to make this a unique event in history? This isn't something that was a minor little pimple in Egyptian history. This was a major disruption. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went up from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Now look at that verse. That summarizes exactly what we've been saying all along, isn't it? Look at that verse again. Pharaoh will not listen to you. So, my wonders will be multiplied. The harder he resists, the more my glory is seen. See, with God, you cannot lose. And if you're against him, you cannot win. And people hate to hear that. That's why Romans 9 strikes people so unfair. I will have mercy upon I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. God is the final authority for history. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now let's think about this, this episode of the blood. On chapter 12, which is the central theme of this. The Lord said to Moses, This month shall be the beginning of months for you, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. So the new year, the Jewish new year, starts, one of the two Jewish new years, starts here. Because that's when they come into existence as a free people, as a redeemed nation. It's like when we become Christians. We have a new life that starts at that point. And so here the national calendar begins. And, this, and so speak to the congregation, on the tenth of this month, there are each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's house, a lamb for each household. If the household is too small for a lamb, he and his neighbor nearest to his house take one according to the number of persons. And what you shall eat, you shall divide the lamb. And he goes on to describe what we call now the Passover. Verse 7, take some of the blood, put it on the two doors posts, and on the lintel of the door houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And he describes some of the details. In verse 11, it's labeled as the Lord's Passover. Now, let's look at the word Passover for a minute. Who's passing over? I mean, it's a common word. We use it for holiday. But think of what Passover means. I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And it will be a memorial to you. You will celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Therefore, every Jew, loyal, orthodox, conservative Jew today 
celebrates Passover. They may not understand why they're still celebrating it, but this verse tells you why. Because God said they are going to do that, and they will do it forever and ever and ever. It is a commemoration of a great historic act. Well, what we want to do is we want to go back and look at this event and what it teaches us about salvation. Because we're looking here not at a psychological feeling. We're looking here at something that happened such that if you were there with your video camera, you could have taped it. The door. Blood on the top, blood here, blood here. It's, you can just see the sign of the cross in that door. And it wasn't the due to somebody's personality in that house. It wasn't due to their race. It wasn't due to anything, any merit on the fact of the personality, merit, or what have you, of who's in the house. The issue was whether they had faith to trust that there was going to be a judgment to start with, and two, if there's going to be a judgment, here's how I keep it out of my door. So it was all a faith transaction here. Utterly unrelated. Well, I can't say utterly unrelated because obviously a person of... <laughs> An evil person isn't going to trust the Lord to do this. But uh, the idea here is that the merit on the passing over is in the blood that's displayed on the door, not on the personality of the person inside. It is an objective passing over of God in his judgment wrath. Now, we want to spend some time on that tonight. So, if you look in the notes, over on page um, 55, I've, I've dealt with some of the aspects of salvation. We said that salvation, whether it's... We've seen two pictures of salvation, by the way, the flood, and now we see the exodus. So, what we want to do, in our mind's eye, is load the databanks with the material of these two historic events. Because this balances your theology. This keeps you tight to the truth. This locks you in so that even though we may have questions about this or that detail, if you will keep these two pictures in mind and review them in your mind's eye and your imagination, then you've got a handle on the gospel. And you should see readily see why in the New Testament things are said in the epistles the way they're said in the epistles. But we notice that there are certain common things that we see in both of these pictures. We could label some. These are just some. You could probably pick out more. It's not a comprehensive list. First of all, we see that God is always gracious before he judges. That he doesn't just lower the boom, but he always gives us warning. He, he's very patient. So patient and so gracious, in fact, that we very sloppily at times get our eyes on his grace before his judgment and figure the judgment's never going to come. And that's how we get out of line as Christians. When God says, I'll be gracious to you, but I'm also going to discipline you. Now, that's not technically not judgment, it's judgment salvation. But the idea here is that God is very gracious. The world has interpreted the delay in the return of Jesus, the delay in the righting of wrongs, the delay in the end of evil and suffering and cruelty in the world, the world has interpreted that sloppily to mean that God isn't serious. 
or if he is, he's a little anemic God in his, in his uh, rocking chair in heaven, unable to do anything about the wickedness in the world. But that's always a feature. It's always a characteristic. It was a characteristic with the flood. It was a characteristic with the exodus. God gave warning. He gave revelations. He gave events. He gave all kinds of messages and so on as part of his grace before the judgment. Then when the boom does lower, we notice that all of God's judgments have this discrimination, this razor-sharp surgical discrimination. It's never a sledgehammer blow that sort of statistically wipes out a population subset or something that is, just happens to be there. No, this is surgically administered. And we've seen evidences of that in the text, didn't we? The firstborn. I mean, come on. How did he pull that one off? How did he go into households who might have had a twin, set of twins, and one of those twins dies, and firstborn only maybe by minutes? How does the angel of death, as he goes into that house, know who was the firstborn? How does the angel of death, when he goes into the barn, know which of the young of a particular litter was the firstborn? How does he know that? I don't know how he knows that. We know God is omniscient. But the point we're trying to make here is this is razor sharp. And that's sort of sobering because it means that God, when he judges, he judges not only in his holiness but in his omniscience. That he omnisciently knows our hearts. He knows all the details of our hearts. And then we said that salvation involves nature as well as man. So that it's not just a case of a psychological phenomenon on the inside of our hearts. It also involves all the world around us. After all, God is the creator of the world around us. And the fall affected the world around us, did it not? Do we not read in Genesis that the physical universe was contaminated by sin, just like the moral, spiritual part of the universe? Of course we did. So therefore, if evil is to be separated from good in the act of salvation, doesn't God have to deal with evil in nature? Well, yes, he does. So, nature has to be affected and redone by his works. We also noted that every time God judges, it's always a judgment that is, or is saved, when he offers salvation in the middle of the judgment, it's always appropriated by faith. Moses, Noah didn't have the knowledge to build a boat to sustain his family and the gene pool of the biological kingdom in a flood that he never saw before it came. He didn't have, he couldn't forecast that. He didn't have the principles of naval architecture to design a boat that would stable, be stable as that boat was. So the issue then is that he received it by faith. He had to trust that these instructions he was getting on how to build that boat were to be followed. That he had to cut the wood a certain length, it had to go at a certain angle, and this is the way it had to be. And he was operating as the blueprints from heaven. And he had to follow those blueprints for something he didn't understand or know. And the same thing here. The people had to kill the, the lamb. It must have looked foolish. It must have looked foolish. I mean, you know, you can just see so-and-so. I just painted my front door. I'm going to put blood all over it now? Mess it up. That's trivial kind of response. But think of what the neighbors might think. Here's a Jew, and here's maybe some Egyptians next door. And, you know, it's 
late in the night, late in the evening, and you know, hear the Jewish priest going out there splatting blood all over the door. What the heck's wrong with him? So, under, from out from a non-Christian perspective, it's totally stupid, totally unimaginable. It's foolish, but not from God's perspective. Now, tonight, we want to spend time on this, because this is going to get us into what blood atonement is all about, and we've got to understand this, we've got to make it central in our thinking. If it's not central in our thinking, then the cross can't be central in our thinking. This is all a prelude to understanding the cross of Jesus Christ and why you can go through all the character-building seminars and leadership and management tools and all the rest of it, but you can't build character apart from Jesus Christ. So, let's look at this. Yes. Oh, perfect discrimination. Yeah. Um, that's, and if any of you, by the way, Marcia was brave, if any of you, uh, if I skip stuff and I'm out of focus or something, raise your hand. Because um, I'll usually have two or three things in my mind, where my pencils are, where the next overhead transparency is, where I am in the Bible, where I am in my notes, and I don't sometimes look at the overhead projector. Okay, so we're on the, the one way of, of salvation. And clearly, the, in, in, the, in the case of, Mo, of Noah, remember that strange word. When we studied that passage, I told you that there was a strange word for the covering of the ark. Go for it. And that Hebrew word equals the word atonement. It's just strange. And nobody knows whether it's the color of the paint, whether it was pitch, or what was going on. But when they built that ark to survive the flood, they covered it with something called this covert. And we don't know what that means. All we do know is it's, it's, it's semantically linked to the word for atonement. Well, that's not an accident. That happened because the guy who planned the flood was the guy who planned the exodus. And he wanted to show that I always do things this way. Always have these same common elements. So sure enough, when we come down to the exodus now, because it's an advance over the flood, we now begin to say, ah, we need to learn more about how God atones, how God provides this atonement. So we want to look a little bit about, about life. Now, last time we left off by saying that in the creation narrative, you remember we had this little formula, body plus spirit equals the soul. And that's what we get from Genesis chapter 2, when God makes Adam. And then we said there's a certain principle, a life for a life. And when the, the curse happens, we lose life. So we die. Well, if the restitutionary principle of God's justice is at work, I can't get... A positive over here if I don't have a positive over here. So if I'm dead, I can't use my dead life to atone for the life that I've lost. I haven't got any assets. That's the problem in salvation. Now, here's where we part company with a pagan mind. The pagan mind always wants to define salvation in terms of the pagan diagnosis. Now, what is the pagan diagnosis of our ill? The pagan diagnosis is, well, we, were, uh, we have uh, had behavioral problems from youth. The problem with human society is its economic background. Poverty causes crime. You know what a quick refutation of that one is? Everybody thinks that poverty causes crime. You know, the most sim anybody over 70 or 80 has lived through a, the counterpoint to that argument. 
in the Depression, most people were poor. Check the crime statistics. Did they go up during the 1930s when you had a depression in the country? No, they didn't. In fact, they went down. Oh, how about that statistic? If crime, if crime is caused by poverty, then crime should have gone up in the middle of the depression. It didn't. So, crime is not caused by poverty. It's caused by envy. Crime has other causes called sin. That's what causes crime. And the reason why the pagan misdiagnoses it is for the same reason the pagan puts away and wants to bury all the truths of the creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. Remember all those buried truths of origins? Why does he want to bury those? Because it reminds him of the presence of the holy God creator to whom he's responsible. So having buried all those things, he's still faced with evil and all the stuff that goes on so he has to figure out, I've got to come to a, some sort of rational explanation for suffering and evil in society. So I'm going to blame it on my genes. I'm going to blame it on my environment. I'm going to blame it on blah, 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 blah. You fill in the blank. It's always I've got to blame it on something. Because we said last, time, last year that what happens if you don't accept the Christian doctrine of God as the creator who, and man as the responsible agent then your definition of evil changes very quickly. Over here in the Christian position, evil is rebellion against God. I start out being a criminal against God long before I start out being a criminal against society. That's an outworking of a first crime. The first crime is against God. Then, after that, we have crimes against man. Over here, on the pagan position... And the pagan position is that I'm not going to be responsible for God, so I'm a victim. So all the blame shifting is always poor, poor me. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of this. I'm a victim of that. I'm a victim of something else. So the pagan theory is a victim theory. Victimization is the content and opposite of the, of the biblical worldview. Well, the Bible says we are responsible for this situation. Now, having said that, that leaves us open and vulnerable here. Because now we admit responsibility. We've lost it. Literally, we have lost it. And now we can't get it. So that throws us into a dilemma. And our, apart from the Holy Spirit causing repentance, our hearts don't like to hear that. That's not really good news. Because that means I have to bow my knee and I have to receive from God. And that makes me have to submit to him. And I don't like in my flesh to submit to him. I like to feel like I can do it myself. So right here up front, we've got a big problem. It's a serious heart problem. Are we going to be submissive and receptive or are we going to be independent and defiant? And it's so strange. That's why the pagan has all these emotions going on. On the one hand, he wants to be this the Operation Bootstrap. I will generate all this righteousness myself. I will do this. I want to feel independent. But yet, on the other hand, his theory of victimization doesn't make him independent, does it? It's all in my genes. My mother dropped me in the head when I was a baby and blah, 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 blah. And I've got all these things that are going on. So here, on the one hand, I want to be independent. On the other hand, here I am whining and moaning and, and fussing about my environment and what a poor victim I am. 
So that's the oscillation that the pagan forms. Now, we don't face that tension. We've got other tensions. Our tension isn't between being a victim and over here trying to do it all ourselves. Our problem is of getting underneath the umbrella of God's grace and receiving it on His terms. And when we think of that reception of His grace, it's not just warm, cuddly, gooey. It's a bloody mess. And that's what this passage is teaching us. This is what it's all about. It is blood and guts, the salvation message of the Christianity. So much so that liberals over the years have laughed at the fundamentalist gospel and said, ah, oh, slaughterhouse religion. You've probably heard that term. Don't believe that. How cruel. That's backwards. How primitive. How oh, the natives out in the jungles believe that. Well, no. The natives out in the jungle just have forgotten less of the Noahic gospel and the educated people, and they remember that there's some sort of placation problem here. Now, they get it all screwed up how they do it, but at least give them credit. They, they do recognize it's somehow associated with blood. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 50 for a moment because we want to see something about blood in the human body and blood in life. 1 Corinthians 15 is a big, long, long, major passage in the New Testament. And we're going to com compare 1 Corinthians 15.50 with Luke 24.39. So if you hold in 1 Corinthians 15 and turn over to Luke 24.39, we want to observe something about our bodies. First, let's look at the 1 Corinthians 15.50 passage. Paul is talking about the difference between our body and our mortal body and the resurrected body. Keep in mind that salvation is not complete until both body and spirit have been saved. Now, the word that applies to the new creation with respect to the human spirit is regeneration. The word that applies to the body is resurrection. Those two are words. And both of them are required for full salvation. The spirit has to be regenerated and the body has to be resurrected. And we, do, we are not saved completely until that happens. So we're wandering around as half saved in one sense. We're, we're regenerated folks, but we have this flesh and bone thing that we cart around with us all day long. And that is the mortal body. Now, there's a feature to this body that is different, that shifts. When you go from the natural body to the resurrection body, apparently, I and mean, we have no data except what's in Scripture, that some things change and some things don't. Now, one of the things that changes, according to 1 Corinthians 15:50, is flesh with blood in it. It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So apparently, our, the physiological, anatomical design of our bodies that now is centered around blood, because blood is a key, key transport mechanism in the, in the body, that that transport mechanism is not functioning, is not needed in the resurrection body. Because the resurrection body is designed for eternity. It never wears out. can't sell a life insurance policy on this thing. You go bankrupt paying the premiums because you just pay them forever because you're never going to die. The resurrection body is undamageable. Now, that's why salvation, our choice, 
whether we're going to receive Christ or reject Christ, that choice has to be done before the resurrection body is received because once the resurrection body has been received, you're locked into it. So a person who participates in the second resurrection that goes to the lake of fire is locked into a body that can never be destroyed. And that's why he, but he can feel forever and ever. Now, that's the horror of it. And in the positive sense, the people who are regenerated receive resurrection body and they do not participate in the second death, but they are to be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. And they can't destroy their body either. So the resurrection body does not have blood in it. And therefore, the resurrection body cannot be used to atone for sin either. It can't be destroyed. And it is not a, a tool for atonement. Now let's go back over to Luke, one of the few pieces of data that we really have on the resurrection body. Luke 24. And let's start out at 36. Because the language reads as though the disciples are there talking and all of a sudden Jesus stands there as though he's been standing there all the time and they suddenly saw him. Real kind of sneaky and spooky. It doesn't say he himself came. It says he stood in their midst. They saw him as they were standing in the midst. And they were startled and they were frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Now watch this. Because this is a passage central to the fact of the resurrection body. Because their first image is they're seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now verse 39 is the key. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. So there's, an, uh, there's the bones and flesh. There is flesh in the resurrection body. And it looks somewhat like our flesh. I mean, they thought it did. But whatever it is, it's not blood-soaked flesh. It's some strange material that we know nothing of, apparently. It goes through doors. It can disappear, disappear. It can eat. Jesus ate in his resurrection body. I mean, you know, what would, you know, some, it wouldn't be heaven if people couldn't eat. So, so there's, there's an eating of the resurrection body, apparently, though, not because it has to. Not because it has to be sustained. So, the interesting thing is his bones in verse 39. You can go on skateboards and not break ankles in the resurrection body. So, the resurrection body is totally different and Jesus Christ could not give atonement in the resurrection body. He had to share a body like ours. And he had to partake of a mortal body like ours in order to pay the cup price for sin. Now, we want to look at what happened. And we want to look at three vocabulary words for the atonement, each playing a role. If you'll turn now to page 57 in the notes, each of these three terms have a particular kind of image. So what I'm trying to do is give you the imagery to associate with these three words. These are three vocabulary words that talk about salvation. Now, obviously, we could, you could spend years on each one of these. Redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation. Now, the thing to remember 
about these is that they, they all focus on the same thing, but from a different angle. So you'll see these words again and again. First word, redemption. We use that word in the English language just like it was used in Hebrew and Greek. When you redeem something, we use that economically. So immediately the word redeem has in the background an economic picture. And the, uh, the picture, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament is a good example of it, and I give you that in the patent notes, where a person who is in bondage, in debt, must be redeemed. That's the image. So the image then, because it's an economic image, refers to going from in debt to positive assets. And therefore it means that somebody has given. Somebody has given something of value to change a negative number into a positive number. It's not just going from minus one to zero, it's going from minus one to plus one, just like justification we've talked about. So, then what do we say? If it's an economic term and God has designed the universe around the gospel, then it follows that being in debt or having this awful thing where creditors are calling you and this your check bounced or something like that, that, that feeling that goes along with that, that actually is an analog to real spiritual debt. The creditors in this case are God's righteous demands. They're saying, you're supposed to be this way, 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 you're supposed to be up there. You know, so. And you're, you're calling, oh, come on, I can't. Can't make the payment this month. And that feeling of being in debt and hounded by creditors is an almost a one-to-one analog to the feeling of needing to be redeemed. When you have the chapter 13 syndrome, that is the, that's the feeling that God wants us to remember is to be associated with our spiritual state. That, unfortunately, we can declare bankruptcy in, in our, our human society, but it doesn't do any good to declare bankruptcy in the spiritual realm because he already tells us we're bankrupt. So, big deal. The creditors don't stop coming to the door. In this case, the righteousness and holy standards of God keep on coming, and there's no way to stop them. It's just constant harassment. And you see, because in unredeemed state, our consciences tell us that we're unredeemed, that we don't measure up, how do most people cope with this? Well, how do you cope with somebody keep calling you on the phone and annoying you? Disconnect the doggone thing. Cut the wire. Well, what answers to the phone? Conscience. So, what is the typical pagan response to a conscience that keeps telling you, you don't live up, you don't live up to the stand, you don't live up to the stand, you don't live up to the stand. Shut up! Drown it with alcohol. Go out and drugs. See, that's where the dynamic is in all this stuff. It's not just somebody has low blood sugar. It's because deep down, there's a problem here, and I don't want to listen to the thing. It's like somebody has a brake light or warning light on the dash panel. I'm going to solve the problem. Take a hammer and knock it out. And five miles down the road, you'll be buying a new engine. Well, that's the problem with God. You don't solve the problem by destroying or nullifying or putting the conscience to sleep with some sort of gimmick. And the redemption then, this redemption, 
It's hard. It's painful. God causes us to have this pain in our temporal lifetime so we understand a little bit about the spiritual reality that goes along with it. So that's the word, that's the connotation of the word redeem. And I give you some verses there where you can see that played out in the New Testament. The second word is a little more difficult to understand, but it's propitiation. Propitiation is probably closest to what happened in the Passover. The word propitiate means to satisfy, to, to satisfy somebody who needs the propitiation. In this case, it's to satisfy God's holiness. Now, in redemption, the picture was, I've got to have a certain amount of assets to qualify. In this case, I have to meet a person's character, God's holiness in this case. And I have to, I have to feel accepted to this. Now, what's the human analog in everyday life? Just as there's an awful experience in life of being in debt and being hounded by debtors, so there's an experience that answers to this in our everyday life. And we all know it because we've all been hurt. We've all been subject to it. And that's when you feel rejected by somebody. You feel that somebody can look you right in the eye and say hello, and there's a door uh, ten feet thick between them and you. And you know, you get the message, you're locked out of their life. And it can be a hostile environment, it can be a friendly environment, but you, you know that the, the, the signals are all there. That I'm living my life, baby, and you're not part of it. And I'll make sure of that. You're excluded. And we've all had that feeling. We've all felt excluded or kicked out or neglected by somebody. Well, that's the analog in human experience to the spiritual side that we are not accepted apart from Jesus Christ to God. He's not interested in the clothes we wear. He's not interested in all the little things and the gimmicks and this and that that we try to put on to satisfy Him. Not interested. He's not even interested in good things we do. Not initially to be accepted to Him. We don't come to God bribing him to accept us with our wonderful good deeds. In this case, it's like this. In the redemption side of the house, and I'm in debt. In this case, I can't pull the phone out of the wall unless I break my conscience. But I'm constantly hounded and constantly hounded and constantly hounded. Somebody give me money. I don't have it. I've got to get out of debt. And I've got to be given the cash to get to that asset level. Well, in propitiation... If I'm being excluded by somebody, somebody has kicked me out of their life, somebody has rejected me, then they've got to do, the initiative has got to come from them. I mean, what can I do? I'm, I'm, the door's shut. The lock's on the outside. And I don't have the key to it. They do. So if I am going to satisfy, I have got to be accepted to God. And in this case, God is not satisfied with me. And he's not satisfied with anybody in Egypt in the middle of the Exodus until they did something. Until they put blood on the door. And then he was satisfied. It was one concentrated, focused effort at the one way of salvation. There wasn't two ways. There weren't two and a half different versions of the ark. And there weren't three or four ways to be saved from the angel of death in the Exodus. There's only one ark and there's only one way to be saved in the Exodus. Now, this is what offends people so about Christianity. 
And Christianity would be perfectly accepted if we could walk in and say, gee, would you add this religious faith to the 108 that you already have? And we'll have a museum of religious faiths. We'll eat in the cafeteria. You pick yours, I'll pick mine. And we'll have one big fappy family while we eat together. But unfortunately, you see, in the Christian gospel, we come walking in and say, all the food's rotten. And I'm not interested in eating this cafeteria. Pukey. So therefore, there's only one bread of life. And that bread is Jesus Christ. And that's the only one I'm interested in. You don't have it? No deal. Well, now that comes off as arrogant to people. But you see, the problem is that it's arrogant only if you think you can qualify before God some other way. See the point? It's not that we are arrogant. It's not that we're trying to be obnoxious to somebody. It's just to say, that's the way God is. Now, you want to walk into his presence without the blood of Jesus, you try it. I'm not interested. Because it's pretty high voltage there. And I'm not going to play that game. You can, you want to. So that's more of the spirit of the idea of propitiation. That God is going to be propitiated by his own atonement. His divine atonement alone propitiates his holiness. I think there's a hymn, and I forgot, I was going to look it up before I came here, but there used to be a hymn that was sung in evangelical circles, something about whether I'm satisfied with Jesus or something. And, you know, that hymn is pretty stupid. That's a stupid lyric in there. It's not whether I'm satisfied with Jesus. It's whether God the Father is satisfied with God the Son. That's the issue. Because if God the Father is not satisfied with the atonement, (laughs) we are problems, big ones. So the focus needs to be less on what we're satisfied with and more on what God's satisfied with in propitiation. All right, the third and last term that we're going to look at tonight is reconciliation. That's pretty familiar. Reconciliation has in in the background relationship. Um, Not so much as propitiation, but a relationship that's been badly fractured. In fact, it describes hostility. And the classic reference for this is Romans chapter 5. So let's turn there a moment. Romans 5.10. We all know the verse. But here's a way the Apostle Paul took this third word to describe salvation. And in that whole section of Romans 5, he expands on that word. Romans 5.10. The idea of reconciliation is more a peacemaking. And the issue is that it's the end of war. If propitiation, I feel excluded from somebody in sort of a passive sense, in, in, in reconciliation, I've been at war with the person and now we need to come and have a peace treaty. So, in Romans 5.10, that's why, look at, the, look at the nouns, just the nouns in verse 10. While we were what? While we're enemies. Oh. Now the verb, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been, past tense, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life, talking about the Christian life. So the reconciliation occurs at the point the person trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. This is when that atonement is applied. Just as as the doors in the Passover, blood, 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 Okay, angel of death passes by. I'm no longer considered an enemy. But the angel of the Lord, as he went over the houses of the Egyptians and there was no blood on the door, he attacked them. 
He destroyed them. He crushed them. He was at war with them because they were at war with him. But on the Jewish homes, with blood, there had been reconciliation and peace. Again, not because of who and what they were, but because they trusted and received the one way of salvation. All right, we'd like to conclude this section of the Exodus. This is our last evening on the Exodus. If you'll turn to those wonderful verses of praise, turn to Exodus 15. I had hoped by tonight to have gotten a um, tape that I played years ago when I preached on the Exodus um, by Handel. And some of you, if you are a music lover, um, Laura, did you ever see Handel's Israel and Egypt? Did you ever hear that? Um, Handel is famous for Messiah. But he also wrote another piece. If you ever can get hold of this, it's well worth it. Handel wrote a piece called Israel and Egypt. And in that piece, it's Handel's interpretation of Exodus 15, musically. And what he did, he has the, a choir and he has a soloist, uh, a male soloist in, the, in there. And he, what he did, he, as he read through Exodus 15, evidently he saw his eyes uh, came down to verse 20. Because what in verse 20 happens is, is that Moses, notice verse 1, Moses, the sons of Israel, they are the men are singing. And then you come down to verse 20, and you come to Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with trembles and dancing, and Miriam answered them. And the word answer there is to answer antiphonally back to the men. The men were singing the text, and then the women, and now notice in verse 21, the beginning of what the women started to sing. Sing unto the Lord, for he is exalted. The horse and his rider is he hurled into the sea. Now, in the Hebrew, when you, re when you have a passage like that, what will often happen, they don't want to write the whole passage out, they just take the first verse. So it appears, and Handel, I think, was right, that the women, if you compare verse 21 to verse 1, the last part, the men, when they start singing, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider as he hurled into the sea. And then the women respond, sing unto the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider is kissed and sea. And it's a wonderful antiphonal back and forth between the male and the female, as, as Honnell builds it. So it's well worth it if you can hear it. And the other reason why I like it, um, like this song, is because in the days of Handel, Theology was taken so seriously that the music had majesty to it. And if you look at these verses, this is pretty fierce stuff, isn't it? I mean, think of what they're saying. I will sing to the Lord, for he is exalted. The horse and its rider he's thrown into the sea. I mean, isn't that pretty brutal? I mean, we have churches today that want to eliminate onward Christian soldiers from the hymnal. Like there's no war going on. Oh, that was violence. That's violence. Of course it's violent. Live in a violent world. What world are you living in? But this is righteous violence. When Jesus comes back and his garments are coated with blood, where do you suppose he gets the blood? He didn't prick his finger on his razor. That is an assault that he is making on planet Earth. There's violence in that. Now, it's not that we worship violence as such. We, that's part of our American character is to be violent. But this is righteous violence. It is a proper time and place for it. Now look at, through, look, at, look at the text as it goes on here. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he's cast into the sea. 
The choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand shatters the enemy. The greatness of thine excellence does to overthrow those who rise up against thee. Verse 8, the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up, the flowing waters stood like a heap, the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. Handel has a neat interpretation of this musically when he gets to this point. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then there's this refrain, and this is the magnificent praise of the Old Testament. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You see the the emotional power of this? You can imagine what somebody's skill in music can do with this. This is a ripper when you put this with good music. Now we're talking about lyrics that really mean something, that have depth and motive and power to them. And why is it that they have power? Let's Let's just kind of conclude with this. Why is it there's something so mighty and powerful about this? It's because it was a real act that happened in the real universe, that happened to thousands of people in an overtly miraculous way, so miraculous, so unique, that only the God of the Scripture could have pulled it off. And to the believer's heart, that's comforting. I need to know that the God who saves me can smash all comers. I need to know that for my own benefit when I get high and mighty and lifted up, I need to know that my God can crush me too. But in all of that, there's a freedom that grows because suddenly now you're protected. Look who is on your side. The God who does this. And see, that's something to get excited about. And that's why there's a whole hymn here dedicated to praise of God. This, by the way, folks, Exodus 15 is one of the first Psalms in the Bible. Not in the book of Psalms, but this is a classic psalm structure. And it was a typical of how the Jews sang, and they praised, and they worshipped this way. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank that you, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you're still a God who can throw the horse and his rider into the sea. That we worship such a wonderful God who's shown his hand faithfully down through history. Lord, teach us to respect you and to respect your character. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If anybody has any topics they'd like to bring up or uh, questions, we'll spend a few minutes. Anybody want to prime the pump? <laughs> That's a good point Vinny brought out is that there's two ways of handling a conscience is to uh, you know, pull a plug on the phone, but also <clears throat> redefine it, redefine standards. And uh, of all people, I was intrigued to see that a while back, I think it was in either New Republic or American Spectator, I read neither of them, but I, I saw the quote, uh, Daniel Moynihan had an interesting article in which he titled, uh, it uh, defining deviancy down was the title of the article and his whole point was that what we do in society 
is we define deviancy down by either officially, such as, for example, courts perhaps now recognizing homosexual marriages as marriage. That's one way you officially do it. Or you can unofficially do it by careful use of vocabulary. Alternate lifestyles. What about fornication? Now, I've often said that what, I, I, what you're really doing in a lot of the, the sex education courses by stressing plumbing rather than character is ultimately you're trying to make the world safe for fornication. Now, why don't we just say that? Or why do we pussyfoot around with all of the, the gimmicks and devices? Just say, hey, you know, we want to fornicate and we want to do it efficiently and safely. So let's, this is fornication 101. But we don't want to do that because if we label the course that way, then, of course, then that brings the conscience into action. We don't like that word. That, that word is a nice word to use. So, it's a, it's a, it's a case where, yeah, you, you can pull a plug on the conscience many ways, but defining deviancy down, like Stan uh, Moynihan, Senator Moynihan uh, said, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah, language gets slaughtered in a, an environment that can't respect truth. It's interesting to watch that um, you start out as little children name calling. That's the first gimmick that we use to destroy language by, by slandering character through the use of language. And we have that little nursery rhyme, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. Well, that's not true. Names will cut far deeper than any stone. And so language distortion begins very early on, but it gets more sophisticated as you get to be an adult. And what we're seeing, of course, is, is, is a con... See, in our country, we have a little problem because... We had such a residue of Christian influence that when the paganism tries to take over, it has to do it through this convoluted method of redefining this, and we redefine that, and we label that good and evil bad. You know, we, we go through a little labeling game. Whereas if you were in France, or say a country further on advanced, I mean, it, they don't quite resort to all this stuff. They just say what they want to say, and that's it. And it's, in a way, it's, it has more integrity in the language than it's language games that are being played. And a lot of it is just simple language games. So, it's true. It ties back to the same thing that we want to see in this framework series that everything we touch, whether it's language, money, um, the physical universe out there, whatever it is, it's locked in to the plan of God in some way, shape, and form. And you, you, you will sooner or later get to this piece. If you start here, you wind up over here through the Word of God. It always is that way. And the Exodus is, a, is just another case. We finished with that event. Now we're going to go on to the law and the giving of the law. And now we're going to move into a whole new area where um, people have the idea that, for example, law starts out with the mind of man. That and I'm sure you've had history courses. Remember back when they started teaching history of the, uh, the, in the early chapters? They would say, how did governments get started? 
started, and they usually give you some sort of a social contract idea that all men got together and they decided to relinquish this right and that right to get along, and they yielded this. That baloney. Government came with what? We know how government got started. It came right after Noah and the flood. And God gave man the right to take life. And then we have people that don't believe in capital punishment. Well, if you don't believe in capital punishment, then what in effect you are is you've destroyed the center of the whole institution of civil government. That is the authority of central government. It doesn't have any other authority. It doesn't have the authority to have kids. It doesn't have the authority to raise children. It doesn't have the authority to assume responsibility. But it does have authority to take life. And that's the one thing that we studiously bow away from. See how, how interesting and convoluted our society has become. Well, when you get into law, the issue there is that we have traditionally in government three branches. And we all learn this in sixth and seventh grade about, oh, well, we believe in the executive and the legislature and the judicial. Well, if you look at the Mosaic law and think about it for a minute, what branches of government do you observe in Israel? Well, let's see. You observe elders and Moses, so that would be kind of like the executives. So you've got a little executive branch there. What else do you observe? You observe in the Mosaic law, laws of evidence, uh, court and judicial proceedings. So you've got the judicial branch. But now, where's the legislature? Where's Congress? Where's the upper and the lower house? Missing. Why? Because the law was given by God. Now, what does that tell you about the three branches of government then? The three branches, of which is the most crucial? Because it's defining the faith of the society. It's the lawmaker. It is the lawmaker, not the law enforcer, because that's subservient to the lawmaker. The function of generating law is a sacred function that defines the absolute values of a society. That's how important lawmaking is. And when you have man, fallen man, making law, you've got a problem. And it's not accidental that in our country, it was the Declaration of Independence that was the most Christian document. Far more Christian than the Constitution, by the way. Because what phrase is there in the Declaration that roots our whole faith nationally to the God? We are endowed by our Creator, with certain unalienable rights. You see that language? Very carefully polished by men who knew what they wanted to write, and they spent hours thinking, what's the right word for this? Inalienable rights. I never will forget, in Bel Air High School, when one of my sons was in a social studies course there, coming home with a quiz that he had been given. It was on a ditto, a ditto machine, the type of thing they had. And this social studies teacher was intriguing. He was a very nice guy. We had neat debates. He was a Unitarian atheist. But he was a, really a nice teacher. And so Jonathan would get, go to class and he'd have a discussion. He just couldn't stand it. <laughs> but this guy was getting A's in his course and he was one of those Bible-believing fundies. So this teacher undertook for his personal sense of destiny and mission to try to convert my boy to the real thing, you know, real life. I mean, you've got to give up that kind of kid. You're going to college here in a year or two. I mean, come on. 
And so he'd come home and we'd have a discussion about what the teacher said. And Jonathan would go back and he'd have another discussion with so-and-so. And then he'd come back the next week and we'd go through this again. It was great because Jonathan really learned how to handle himself because he was in the middle of this crossfire. Well, he came home one day with this quiz. And it was to identify different passages out of the Constitution Declaration. One was, um, man is endowed. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Uh, man is endowed, dot, 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 with certain inalienable rights. And I thought, how intriguing that the dots were there. Because the issue of an inalienable right is where did it get its inalienableness? What does the word inalienable mean? It means that that right can't be taken away. Well, who says? If I'm the lawmaker, of course I can take a right away, right? I mean, don't we define rights in laws? So therefore, the lawmaker can take rights away or he can give them. But isn't it perceptive that the Christian influence was so strong when the Constitution was written? And you imagine, as Englishmen, they had gone through this mess with Parliament. They had gone through the mess with King George. George and the Parliament had messed around with the law for the colonies. And they were sick of this stuff. And so they wanted to get back to the issue that neither king nor parliament is going to change this. So we say that all men, not some men, and you can argue that, well, therefore, why do they have slaves and so forth? And that was, a, that was you know, the blindness on their part. But all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And it's a magnificent statement and in six or seven words of the whole biblical view here of law that all human law can do, or ought to be able to do, is to reflect and codify these rights that God has given. And no other. It doesn't make rights, and it can't take rights. But watch the language of your newspaper today. That we get a group that's going to demonstrate they want their right. Their right comes out. And then we've got to have, then the courts have got to think this thing through. And so what has happened is that the courts have become legal institutions. And one of the things that you want to understand about the law as we approach it, and this is a very important lesson, probably one of the most, most important political debates that we have had in the last 20 years happened before the Senate hearings for a Supreme Court justice. And that man's name was Robert Bork. Robert Bork was nominated, I think by Reagan, to be a Supreme Court justice. Bork came before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And the Judiciary Committee at the time was chaired by the Delaware guy, which is Biden. And Biden and, I never forget this, Joe Biden and uh, Teddy Kennedy on the Senate Judiciary Committee were going after Bork. What was ironic about this is Bork was a professor of law, and here Teddy graduated with a C average from Harvard Law School. And he was the one who was telling this professor all about the nature of law. Kennedy and Biden were furious at Bork. And I mean, the newspapers treated this guy like he had horns, and, and very few people understood the debate. Now, what, I'm not saying Bork is a Christian, and I'm not arguing that we agree 100% with his legal things, but, but what Bork was standing for was a very important principle that applies to our Bibles. There's a parallel between law and theology in that both rely on interpretation of literature. The law relies upon interpretation of a set of codified law, and theology depends on the interpretation of this book.
So the rules of interpretation are critical in both cases. And there is a parallel, actually, between th theology, law, and literature. Those three fields are very closely interlocked. Well, what Bork was arguing for, and they smelled it, and Biden and Kennedy saw it, and it was so neat, because they're smart men, and they knew what Bork was up to. Here's Bork's position. Bork came and volunteered to be on the Supreme Court, and if he were to be on the Supreme Court, he would, uh, he would start what he called the doctrine of strict interpretation. Now, the doctrine of strict interpretation says that the Supreme Court cannot pass judgment on any case that is not strictly addressed in the original Constitution and its amendments. Now, what terrified Kennedy and Biden was that all major judiciary decisions of the past 30 or 40 years have been based on sociology, not on the Constitution, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So here you'd have the spectacle of a Reagan nominee coming before the Senate Judiciary Committee getting possibly on the court and half this man, who was very influential as a professor of law, arguing to the other justices, hey guys, you can't read that in there. It's not in there, and if it's not in there, we can't decide it. If somebody wants to write the law, that's Congress's prerogative, not the court. I, as a judge, cannot go beyond the written law, period. I may not like that, I may have to let people off, but I will not pass judgment on laws that I don't have. Well, that's called a strict interpretation position. And that's analogous in law to what we fundamentalists are doing in the Bible. We are the strict interpretation people on the Bible. The liberal clergyman who hits Greece when he does this, I've often said what we need is the first liberal edition of the Bible made of rubber and you can stretch it any way you want. Now, that is the liberal theologian. But then you come to the liberal judge. What is he doing? He's doing exactly the same thing to the law. All of a sudden, we're inventing rights that aren't even in the law. And the argue Bork was, he, Bork was not saying, by the way, in his defense, he was not saying, I'm going to do away with civil rights. He was just as much recognition. He just said, there's a proper way of doing this, folks, and we didn't do it right. If you want the civil rights, you pass an amendment to clarify it in the Constitution. Well, nobody wanted to resurrect the Constitutional Conventions and go through that. You know, I mean, good night, that's too inefficient. Well, Bork's argument was it's a lot more inefficient to allow the law to be interpreted the way you guys are interpreting because you wound up, finally, as liberal theology has, this book physically sits there, but it's useless because nobody pays any attention to it, nobody cares what's written into it, and we're not interested in interpreting it. So isn't that what's happened to the law? So as we head now into the next week, as we go into the mosaic, we're heading into a very contemporary issue. What is law all about? And you're going to find that we are in as much conflict with the society around us in this area as we were in Genesis with the biologists, as we were with the flood and the geologists, now we're going to be at loggerheads with all the lawyers and the judges. So, that's the political thing we were talking about, and that's where the scriptures are going. Not that the gospel is a political gospel, we're not saying that. We're simply saying that this book has a total claim on our lives. It, it speaks to every area of life, and you cannot teach the Word of God as though it's some just little religious thing over here. Now, that's true. We want to focus on the gospel. But if we disregard things like the nature of law, things like origins, and these other things that people think are peripheral, you know what you wind up doing? You wind up changing the gospel. 
because now God isn't God anymore. He's just a religious figurehead. Jesus really isn't the atoning Jesus Christ for sin because he really is only a Jewish carpenter. So you change meanings. If you don't buy the whole thing, you change the vocabulary. Change the vocabulary, you change the thought. So as we proceed now, if you read uh, Exodus 19:20, just two chapters, just read it. If you're really are fascinated by law and you like to kind of get a, a running start on it, a parallel to Exodus 19 and 20, if you want to read more, is um, Deuteronomy 4 through about 9. That's another parallel passage. And you might want to look at that. Pay particular attention as you read to what the people saw on Mount Sinai. I will hope, if I can get my 35mm projector to work, I, I visited Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, traditional site, and I'll try to bring some slides in next week so you can see what this looked like, what the valley looks like that's out from this Mount Horeb. Give you a real picture of where these people are when they do this. But watch the text. Watch what Moses does. Then watch what the people do. They get down to this and they get spooked out. They come to Mount Sinai and they see this fire and the smoke and there's a reaction. And the question is, why did they react that way? What was going on in their heart? So, it'll be interesting to study. That's what we're going to do next week.